the lectionary epistles for the following few months, as well as the last couple of weeks, have come to us from the letter to the church at Ephesus. And this morning's passage is from the third chapter of Ephesians, verses 14 through 21. Paul is, or Paul's pen at least, Paul's community, is writing to the church at Ephesus dealing with the issues of not only some division going on in that particular church, but especially the issues of faith in a syncretistic, that is to say, a multi-faith complex uh, world. Ephesus was a harbor town that collected people from all over, and the primary, in fact, the primary uh, spiritual symbol uh, was the goddess uh, Diana, uh, and that was the Roman symbol harking back all the way to the original Greek symbol where the largest temple at the time, at the time of seventh wonder of the world, it was said, was erected. Uh, in that community, the small church of Christians that were Jewish, mostly, uh, some Gentile as they were starting to be, uh, that small community of Christians struggled to take hold of their uh, of their community and their congregation. So Paul's words to them are words of encouragement, just as they are words of encouragement to us. Hearing now this text, may God open up to us a new understanding of this word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with the power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. A friend of mine from Atlanta came to see me uh, several, many years ago, in fact, with a problem. It seems that he and his wife were preparing to make a long trip to Europe. It was their first big trip, and they had two boys, uh, not toddlers really, seven or eight years old. And he and his wife were anxious about uh, the possibility that they would not come back, that in fact, and maybe their airplane would crash and they would leave their children uh, orphans. His problem, as it was defined to me, was that he and his wife wanted to write to their children a letter that they would put in their last will and testament about their last words to their children if that, in fact, happened. 
as he shared it, what, what am I supposed to say to my children if I don't come back? Can you help me with that? And first I said, well, my first advice is don't wait until you die to tell your children what you think is important. Do that now and live it out of your life so that they experience that meaning. But I said, okay, so ask yourself, what is the most meaningful uh, reason for your life? What is your purpose for life? What is it that really brings you a sense of fulfillment? Uh, and, And when you get in touch with that, you and your wife, then write that to your children because that's what you're showing your life to be, and that's what you would like to leave your children in the process. He thanked me, went away, in a week he came back with uh, a letter, and this is my best recollection of that letter. I will read to you, Uh, dear boys, if you were reading this, it is because I have for some reason died. It went on to say how proud he was of them and how much he loved them, and then he got to the heart of what he wanted to leave them with. He said, As you read this, I suspect you are scared and deeply hurting about our deaths. You may even feel responsible, like you should have talked us out of going, or you may be angry at us for going. You may even be angry at God for letting something like this happen. I can only say to you, don't go there. You had nothing to do with it, and God didn't cause it either. When it comes to your anger, That is a natural part of grief. Later you will see that prolonged anger serves no purpose and you should move on. The place I hope you move on to is one of hope and love and especially forgiveness. Even forgiveness of God. As I said, God didn't cause our death, but God does bring resurrection and new life out of it. Look for it in all places, and be open to it. Since your mother and I are no longer there to help raise you in faith, it is even more important that you grow in your faith life. In fact, the presence and love of God for you fills up not only the vacuum your mother and I have left, but also the vacuum of every empty place in the whole universe. Remember that God's love for you will fill up the giant hole you feel right now, so seek it with all your heart. I love you, Dad. As touching as that story is, it is in fact true, although it is not exactly as I read it to you. It is a compilation of several conversations I have had with people over time wanting to do exactly that, to leave something to their children, a word of wisdom in their wills. As morbid as the thought is, it forces us to ask, ask Christians what it is that really matters to us and what it is that we would like to leave either to our children or our nephews or nieces or just those that we know in our community. This is exactly what St. Paul is dealing with as he wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus. He had visited that church three times over his lifetime, spending at one point three years with them, two of them in prison. He loved them deeply and knew who they were and what their needs were. 
He writes this letter near the end of his life. It is his magnum opus, his greatest work that he would like to give them about what really is important and what he would like to leave for them. And in this morning's passage, we heard these really so deeply moving, encouraging, most encouraging words about what he hopes for them. He says, I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Summarize the point is so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul says, that begins on your knees. I pray, he says, for you. It begins on your knees because that is the most humble place where we gather before the presence of God and our neighbor. It begins on your knees because that is an act of submission that we give ourselves up, our knowledge of truth, our awareness of what is real. We hold ourselves up to something greater than we are. We surrender. I pray, Paul says, on my knees. And the prayer that he offers up is the same prayer that we should as well, and that is to be strengthened in our inner being through the Spirit of God. Last week, if you were here, you may remember that I preached some about this false split in ourselves, that we are both an ego-driven self, which is, according to some people, our real false self, and a real self, which is, in fact, the image of God in us. When we are most truly ourselves, our authentic, real selves, we are not living out of the false, ego-driven self. You know that, that false, ego-driven self that, that runs through our brains like a bunch of drunken monkeys saying, this is what you need to wear, and this is what you need to say, and this is how you need to act, and this is what you're supposed to do. All of that stuff that, that we think holds us up to some standard of acceptability or sociability that in fact will get us ahead of the game. That's the false self. The real self, Paul says, is that thing in us that is most godlike. And then when we live between these two selves, the split personality, say, uh, it comes with great cost. I think this is what Paul means when he says, on my knees I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being through the Spirit of God. After I preached that sermon last Sunday, several of you asked me, so how does one do this? How does one get further away from uh, his or her false self 
uh, and closer or more involved and related to one's real self, especially in a culture that, that all it seems to do is to keep feeding all our needs, uh, my personal individual needs, which is exactly true. How, how does one leave that culture and reconnect? And again, I will say, as Paul has, that it begins on our knees, being aware of how empty we are, surrounded by all that we are distracted with, how hungry and longing we are for a love that surpasses all knowledge, a love that goes beyond our ability to manipulate it or control it or to Uh, direct it or to earn it, a love that is in fact the rootedness, the groundedness of all things. That's what we truly hunger for in our real selves and our false selves are telling us the quickest way to do that is to get the new iPhone 6. It turns out that the spirit that Paul prays for to connect to our inner being is a bit shy. Uh, I would say introverted, at least. The Spirit of God is, to use uh, Annie Lamott metaphor, much like a lost stray cat who peers at us from the darkness of cover, wanting to know if we actually want to be in relationship and, and but until we get down on our knees with a little plate of milk or a spoonful of cat food and entice and invite that stray cat to us, that spirit stays away. Which is to say, it honors us so much that it will not intrude upon us unless we are open and willing to receive it. So on our knees in prayer, we begin this search for the ground and rootedness of this love. And it is, in fact, just saying basically what we need and what we're hungry for and what we yearn for. It is, in fact, creating enough space in us. In fact, the word education comes from the Latin word educare, which is related to the word of to empty out, to create enough space. Ironically, our whole educational system is about how to fill up the space. But true education is about how to empty oneself of all that has been filled up in the past so that we will have enough space for the truth to actually fill us up. We name our hunger on our knees, We own up to what we long for. And after some time, we will discover that that cat has come into our house and now sleeps upon our chest at night. It is, in fact, a love so enormous that we will discover has rooted in us that it is beyond our comprehension, beyond the length and breadth and height and depth of anything we can imagine I was stunned two weeks ago or so when the 
photographs from the spacecraft New Horizons started returning to us. But what stunned me most were not the photographs, uh, but the comment that I, for some reason, didn't know or forgot that Pluto, whether it's a planet or whatever, is actually 4.6 billion miles from Earth. 4.6, did I hear it right? Billion? No, he meant million. No, it's billion. And that being the case, the Earth in its circumference is 25,000 or so miles around. So therefore, we would have to go around the largest middle of the Earth, 184,000 times to get to Pluto. Trying to get a sense of the enormity of this, you have to ask, how large then is our solar system? And if Earth were the size of a walnut, then the planets of the solar system would need a large city to inhabit in order for it to be of scale. You got me? The nearest star, then, to the sun wouldn't even fit on planet Earth based on our solar system scale with the Earth as a walnut. This is just the solar system, just the, what used to be nine planets. So how about our galaxy we call the Milky Way? Compared to our galaxy, our solar system is but a grain of sand on a beach the size of the subcontinent of India. Our solar system is but a grain of sand on a continent the size of India. Hundred billion stars, as best we know, in our galaxy. Maybe 200, give or take a billion. I mean, you know, maybe four. This is our galaxy. What about the universe? Shrink our galaxy to the size of a dinner plate. All the galaxies now a million light years apart by scale. You would fill up again the whole subcontinent of India. A hundred to 200 billion galaxies we know about. And Paul says, I commend to you the fullness of God, the light of God, the length and width and height and depth of God's incredible love. And it fills up all that universe I just described and more. Not a hundred million light years away, but now. Present. In each and every one of us, and in each and every single atom in this universe, in the space that we inhabit, in us and through us and with us and by us and behind us and in front of us and below us and above us. This incredible fullness of the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says, I pray for you in your inner being to know.
So how come we don't? I mean, it begs the question, why are we not now filled up with that? Maybe because we're not empty enough? Maybe because all the things that we are taught to strive for, money, accolades, adoration, security, family, fame, maybe because of all the love that we seek from our parents or our children or our siblings or our neighbors or community, maybe because of the infinite hole in us that was created by the very creation of the ground of our being, maybe because every basement and attic and closet in our souls is filled up with all of the stuff and false assumptions of what is right and true, that we don't have anything open left for that fullness to dwell in. It begins on our knees in humble awareness that we are in need, emptying ourselves and the idols that we collect, thinking mistakenly that they will fill us up. Religion is one of those two, by the way. So we name it for what it is. We start a little spring cleaning, simplifying our lives and sweeping out enough space for the spirit to get a toehold. And this takes time. And I don't expect that when you're a young person that you will give in to this immediately. Because... Our ego selves serve a purpose. They drive us to be successful, to be better than we would be ordinarily. You can't just completely wipe away your ego self like that. You have to grow into it. Fred Craddock, who was the preacher's preacher par excellence, professor of preaching at Candler Seminary, We've all read his stories. You've heard his stories proclaimed by all the preachers in this church. Fred Craddock died last spring, and at his funeral, he had requested no sermon or homily or eulogy. But, as we know, the dead don't care, but the living do, and the living needed to have a eulogy and a homily, and so they invited Tom Long, the now just retired, teacher of preachers at Candler, to give it. In it, it was mentioned that when uh, Fred uh, was facing his own false self, true self split, he said this, when I was in my late teens, I wanted to be a preacher. When I grew into my late 20s, I wanted to be a great preacher Now that I am older, I want more than anything else to be a Christian, to live simply, to love generously, to speak truthfully, to serve faithfully, and to leave everything else to God. What a beautiful life he and Paul has laid out before us. Thanks be to God, whose incredible fullness is ours for the asking.